millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Irish Examiner podcast series to mark the centenary of the most intense year of the War of Independence. I'm Mick Clifford. Today we're looking at the burning of Cork City, which was one of the seminal events of 1920. This occurred on the night of the 11th of December, and it followed a whole series of events during which the conflict in the Munster area in general, and Cork in particular, got very vicious. Joining me to discuss what was a very traumatic episode in the history of the southern capital is historian and independent Cork County Councillor, Kieran McCarthy. Kieran, could you give us the run-up to that fateful night in December 1920 when the burning of Cork occurred? I suppose there's a number of things to consider here that like the burning of Cork wasn't a, a once-off element. Uh, I mean, if, if you look back two to three months previously, like the violence within the War of Independence, the tit-for-tat violence was increasing uh, moment upon moment or event by event. Um, so basically from... You could say from the hitting of the city's RIC barracks in June, the summer, uh, and then you've got the assassination of um, Chief Commissioner um, Smythe or Smith. You've got Oswald Swansea hit in August. You've got curfews introduced. You've got ambushes then beginning to appear in the city streets early October. You've got a huge ambush on Barrack Street. Like the IRA are getting close to the city the whole time. In the start of 1920, they were out in the county attacking RIC barracks. By October, they're in the heartland um, of the RIC and the Black and Tans, who were also kind of patrolling the streets. There was an attempted burning in City Hall um, in early October. On the 9th of October, it was the first attack by the Black and Tans. I mean, arson became a, a tool for revenge on both sides, very much from July onwards, when you start looking at some of the ambushes and records. Um, and then you've got things like the death of Terence McSweeney on the 20, 25th of October. You've got um, the hanging of Kevin Barry. There's a teenager, uh, Athena Aaron Scout Paddy Hanley, who's murdered by one of the Black and Tans in, the, in mid to late October, uh, mid to late November. Um, and then just the violence. It was, there was a. a you killed Michael, the biggest damage. And then you killed Michael, Michael on the 28th. 28th. Um, and I think it was only a matter of time when there was going to be this huge fallout on the streets of Cork where it was that the battle was going to be in the heartland of the RIC uh, and the IRA and who's going to hold the city and who's not going to hold the city. And on the night in question, earlier that evening, we had an incident in Dillon's Cross on the north side of Cork. Yeah, I mean, you, you've got soldiers um, and black and tans who were kind of patrolling the area, patrolling the north side of the city, um, and they were attacked at Dillon's Cross. Um, so 8pm um, on that Saturday evening, the attack took place, um, and by 10pm, the revenge began to take place. And how did they react initially to that ambush at 8pm? The initial reaction was to line up anyone who was in that area, anyone who was hanging around. So once the ambush took place, if you were walking the roads, you were lined up against the wall and you were actually searched. Um, there was a tram that was stopped um, by St. Luke's Cross that the people on that were told get off and they were searched. And then the tram was actually told go back into town. And the, by the tram, by the time the tram got into St. Patrick Street, the Black and Tans were waiting for it and they actually burnt it out. So that was the first like 
one of the first symbolic acts that we're going to get revenge for this ambush that you had on us this evening. And there was two brothers shot, the Delaney brothers. Yeah, later later on, we'd say maybe at, at 2.30 in the morning, 2, 2, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m., that the Delaney brothers in Blackpool were actually targeted. But between like 8 a.m., by the time the Delaney brothers were shot, 8 p.m., yeah, and uh, and 2 a.m., like there was a lot of ground covered by the black and tans. A lot of damage actually had had begun. I mean, you're you're basically from 10 p.m. onwards. You've got um, it's reputedly the K Company of the black and tans. They're 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 walking around St. Patrick Street. They're firing guns into the air. Um, we do have accounts of um, witness na- statements by um, IRA members. So, for example. Um, the engineer of the second battalion of Cork Brigade Number no. One, Michael O'Donoghue, he was hiding out in the Shamrock Hotel on the Grand Parade. He was looking out on the city, like he recalls clearly the gunshots in the air. He also reco- recalls then, I, I suppose, seeing fires. And um, so somewhere around 10 p.m. that we know that grants on, uh, I suppose, the western end of Partick Street um, by the what's now the Mutton Lane entrance to the English Market. There was a, a gorgeous emporium there that actually was targeted, and then. A call was sent to the fire brigade, um, to Alfred Hudson, the chief uh, fire brigade man, to, to come with his with his unit and try to out it. And of course, when they got into town, they saw the guns being fired in the air. So, so, the, so it started down around there, Kieran. And how did it spread? And how far did it spread? Um, basically, once Alfred Hudson got a hold or, or tried to control the fire in Grants, he wasn't overly successful. But he, what he was successful in is that he prevented the spread to the English market. And that's probably one of the reasons why we still have old pieces of the English market in, in 2020 um, surviving. But he got a call then that um, the Munster Arcade further down, which is now pennies, and further down again, Cashes and Company were actually on fire. Um, and the thing is, by the time... So sorry, were they, were they started in different locations? Yeah, different fire? locations. So um, Hudson at the start was... He, he was thinking, oh, I just have to contain the fire. He was the chief fire, fire officer. Yeah, he was the chief fire officer. He just thought that I was, I'm just going to contain the Grants fire. And then he got a call from the, he got a telegram from the town clerk or a message was sent by the town clerk um, that you must go down and see these new fires that are after breaking out. And, and he went down, but he actually noticed that whatever was thrown into the Munster Arcade and Cashes and Companies was flammable material. Um, and the buildings just went up very, very, very quickly. They seemed to be all, also kind of old timbers within the buildings. And then they actually spread back um, towards Oliver Plunkett Street, back towards Cook Street. So you've got this huge central block of Partick Street um, by the following morning completely kind of burnt out. Um, and so while Hudson was trying to contain the fires, you've got, yeah, the Black and Tans are still running loose. They're coming up to Fire Brigade, people kind of going... What are you doing? Were they impeding? The, the um, according to reports afterwards, they were. Um, I know Alfred Hudson in his witness statement afterwards, he seemed to be slow to condemn um, the black and tans. Perhaps he didn't want the black and tan to come after him or the, uh, members of the British Army to come after him. Uh, I know some of his members afterwards gave anonymous statements uh, to a report that was commissioned by the IRA called Who Burned Cork City? Uh, and it, it's clearly in that that like those accounts of black and tan stepping on hoses and kind of putting um, or like iron bars or kind of spikes through some of the hoses. Um, and of course, Alfred Hudson had a huge worry that he wouldn't have enough water um, to draw from the sewers of the city, from the water supply of the city um, to put out the fires. So are we talking now about, and for people who would know Cork City, are we talking about the main drag through Patrick Street at some stage all being 
on fire? Was that the main heart of the fire? Yeah, yeah I mean, you're, you're probably talking from, let's say, Burger King. What's well, no Burger King? All the way down to, to Cash's. Uh, and all the buildings along there were... Like, the, the fire spread. Like, some, some buildings are more damaged than others. Um, like, Cash's and company seem to be wiped out. Um, Roach's, we, we know that Roach's stores, that the front part of Roach's stores was heavily damaged. But behind the, the Roach's stores, buildings or warehouses that were off... Uh, Mailer Street weren't uh, weren't as damaged. You um, I mean you're talking five acres of land? Uh, five acres. Five acres of property that was destroyed. Like a hundred businesses that were destroyed. Um, and there's a reality to that as well. If you were a shopkeeper, wake up the following morning, you're going town, going downtown. Your shop is is gone. And and the next question you're going to say to yourself is, okay, who do I need to contact? Um, and like some of the early things that the shopkeepers were trying to do the following morning was trying to get their deeds out of their safes at least to get any if there's money in their safe um get it out because there are there were there are records of looting on the sunday on the on the sunday morning but when you actually see cork examiner photographs of people on the streets um with carts taking things away their kids like with wooden carts and things like that so i'm not too sure the extent of the looting the following morning um that was expressed by the british would there have been many people living in that part of the city at the time, it would uh, all have been commercial premises. Yeah, right? no, there would have been. Uh, and many of those were, I mean, once they started fires and once they heard the, the commotion, um, a lot of them got out. They tried to get their their their, their goods, their property actually out. Like but their, their homes were destroyed, basically. Their homes were destroyed if they were living above some of those kind of properties um, that were destroyed. We do know that nobody was killed, which is phenomenal, like for five acres of property that was destroyed in a fire that spread quite rapidly. Plus that you have um, a trigger-happy black and tan company across the city as well, um, and that you'd have a lot of emotion around the city. You've got people kind of screaming, shouting. Um, I, I think in our time, if we went down to see it, I, 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 we probably would be aghast to, to, to see the level of damage. Um, there would have been a, a huge public outpouring, crying, screaming. I think sometimes we forget about the emotional side of what happened that particular evening. Um, and, it, and it's amazing. I, I mean, my, my own grandmother died um, in 2003, but she didn't remember, like, as a small girl going down the following morning to see it and being aghast, like, as a young person, as someone who was five or six years old. Um, and we do have accounts um, in the Hollywood, for example, from years after 1920. Halibano being the, the supplement of the examiner at Christmas. Yeah, and like people kind of recording their experiences. There was a Mr. Ellis who was working for the, the Cork examiner at the time and he gave, he gave his account of kind of going into town. Um, and I mean, I've got a, a quote here actually from uh, Liam Derosta, who was a Sinn Féin councillor. He was, all, I would have also called him the chronicler of the War of Independence in Cork. We have his diary in the Cork City and County Archives. And he notes, quote, last night in Cork was such a night of terror and destruction as we've not had yet had an orgy of destruction and ruin on this calm, frosty sky red. Red as blood with the burning of the city and the pale cold stars uh, looking down the scene of this dissolution and frightfulness. Oh God, have mercy on this city, end quote. was pretty devastating in that respect, wasn't it? Yeah. In terms of damage done during the Civil War in any urban centre, this was far and away the worst? This was far the worst. Um, I mean, we were damaged during the Civil War, I suppose, when the Irish Free State Army tried to take the city. Um, many of our bridges and our roads were kind of blown up and damaged, but this was the heartland of a historic port city. 
Um, you've got innocent people who are just going about their daily business that actually were targeted. I mean, Cork's a small place. Like Everyone kind of knows each other. I mean, I've said the same in... Um, in my work with the examiner on the Witness to Murder book, which was the inquest of Tomás McCurtain, um, that following that incident, like following the murder in Blackpool, that you'd have people going about their business the following morning, but people knowing each other, people would know the local black and tan, they'd know the local RAC officer. I think the same in, in this, you can imagine people walking down the street the following morning, like, and you still have black and tans patrolling the streets, you still have members of the British Army, Victoria Barracks patrolling the streets, you probably have some, some of the British Army were... were born and raised in Cork, you've already seen officers born and raised in Cork. You can imagine that sort of tension on the street as well, which is something that's not overtly explored um, within the War of Independence, that people did know each other. Um, and, and Which sometimes makes it more bitter. And, and, makes it, and makes it bitter. In the immediate aftermath then, Kieran, what, what was the official reaction? Was there anything, for example, in the House of Commons or was... Yeah, Monday morning, and actually, like if you if you go into the Cork Examiner on uh, on, on the Examiner Digital Historical Edition um, or Irish News Archive as well, you can get it. You can go into Monday the thirteenth of December, and you can see the uh, the debate that was held in Westminster. So you've got T. P. O'Connor. Um, a former nationalist, now a kind of an independent. He's he's standing up in, in Westminster and he's calling on. Was the he chief, from Cork? Uh, no, That's right. Uh, he was calling on the chief of state for Ireland, um, Hamer Greenwood, to account for your officers, your your black and tan officers. Um, and Hamer Greenwood basically said that he's he doesn't have all the details yet. He doesn't think that his officers were involved, uh, and that's the line that was taken for several weeks actually afterwards. Um, the mayor, the Lord Mayor of Cork, Don Logo Callaghan, was like, "You're telling lies now. You need to, you need to come clear with this." Uh, but one of the things that was done during the the night of the burning and afterwards um, is that uh, I suppose a, an IRA volunteer, Seamus Fitzgerald, um, he actually took interviews, um, and so he recorded he he recorded the witness statements of ninety people. Ninety. Ninety people. Um, or, you know, yeah, 70 to 90 people. Um, there's a lot within his record. And he published it as a pamphlet called Who Burned Cork City? Now, the original plan was to give that pamphlet to members of the English Labour Party who were trying to get, this, the, I, I suppose, this Westminster government actually out and that they were saying, you're too hard on Ireland. Um, so there was that particular pamphlet plus... Um, a pamphlet in a in a general sense on the War of Independence in Ireland and that the 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 hard hearted approaches by Hamer Greenwood, the the chief um, the, 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 che the chief secretary of Ireland, um, and so we're very very lucky. We now have who burned Cork City as this as this witness statement, like the Strickland report. I was like released as uh, was the that no official report that the British decided to do into it. Uh, General Strickland, who like he was the general stationed in the Cork district, was asked to come up with his report, but he just wasn't forthcoming with the report. Like he, it was eventually, many parts of the report were just uh, were buried, um, and so we're left really with who burned Cork City, um, and. I mean, in in one sense, we never really got any formal statement from Westminster on who burned Cork City. And you mentioned Strickland. Is there any suggestion that unofficially the likes of him or one of his immediate subordinates may have authorised it? Or was this the black and tans deciding, let's go crazy effectively? My my reading of it is that let's go crazy, that enough is enough and that there was drunkenness involved. And I mean, it's amazing, like the K company that were deemed responsible, they were disbanded, I think, in March 1921. Um, so like three months later, these lads were told to go home. 
Um, so there probably they're, so there was an investigation really on them, and, and, but it's too late for Cork. I mean, they had to rebuild Cork. It it took. How did that come up? Was there any compensation then offered from the the Crown Force? Uh, not at the start. Not at the start. We were you're, you're 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 in the middle of a war of independence. I mean, as as time went on, you could you could say like a year after um, the truce. Um, when you've got Michael Collins in charge of a very early Irish Free State government, I mean, he did some work with um, Westminster as part of the truce that there'd be a compensation package for Cork, a proper compensation package, because what Westminster was kind of offering in the early days was just too low. Um, there were these various, um, I mean, you, in January, February, March, April, like business, the, the members of the hundred businesses that were destroyed, they went to the local courts, like seeking justice, seeking funding, and the courts were offering packages. Um, the IRA courts? No, no, these were like the, uh, the, the local the old courts. courts. Yeah, and, but, but what, my I, reading of the situation is that, uh, and I, I'm, I'm, one of the things I did during lockdown was to read the examiner from 1920 to 1930 and to go through every page. Um, and I'm trying to get my head around the various meetings and various events on how do they actually rebuild Cork City. So there's one thing burning it down, how do you actually get compensation and then actually rebuild the city? That's another, it's a big story which I'm trying to get my head around. So my my reading of it is that the businesses in town weren't happy in the first two years with the compensation package that were being offered and then Michael Collins um, struck a deal with Westminster that there'd be, a, there'd be an appropriate level of um, reconstruction funds given uh, and then that Cork Corporation would have a finance committee to distribute those funds and that was actually set up and we're very, very lucky then within uh, Cork City and County Archives that we actually have the minutes of the reconstruction committee from City Hall um, and the various elements they had to go through because it's one, like, you could, one of the things that strikes me is that like some of the bigger businesses like Cashes and Company, the Munster Arcade, William Egan and Sons, they put up temporary huts, we'd say, in January um, 1921. From which to trade out. From which to trade from. And they were quite happy. Like They didn't have to pay enormous amount of rates. They could chip away, they could, they could tip away there quite nicely. And so when the time come for them to rebuild... Um, like some businesses had architects lined up and designs and so And when did they get around to rebuilding again? Um, we're very much talking, I, I would think from 1924 onwards to 1927. I mean, from, you would, uh, the autumn of 1927 is more or less the last building was kind of put into place. So, so up to 24, you're talking for about three to four years, effectively the centre of Cork, major commercial hub in the south of the country was out of action. Yeah, it was a ruin with timber huts. A ruin with timber huts. Yeah. No, some buildings did rebuild. I mean, then there was grand plans. I mean, there was a grand plan to widen Winthrop Street. Winthrop Street was a narrow lane. They widened that and they wanted to create a wider, wider footpaths um, in that particular area. There was, I mean, your many of the buildings that were destroyed, and many of them began, belonged to 1830s, 1840s Cork. So the, the style of architecture had changed. You're talking nearly 90 years later. So... I mean, if you do look at what was constructed in terms of what's now De- what's formerly Debenhams, formerly Rocha Stores building, you're dealing with uh, this this gorgeous department store of its of its time, a style of its time. Um, now, looking at Cashes and Company, they seem to rebuild, construct the building more or less from what was there in the 19th century. Um, but but if you think of the Munster Arcade and its kind of reconstruction, if you look up above Pennies, you'll see the gorgeous 1920s buildings. So. They had that problem as well as, okay, well, how do we design for the present day? 
um, the present day demands of, of, of buying and selling. Right. And take it back to the immediate aftermath. What was the impact of the burning on the War of Independence and on what you might call the, the, the psychic health of the city? I think the psychic health, people were just fed up, I think. Um, but, I mean, the, the War of Independence went on. I mean, like, you've got Crossberry ambush, Gypsy ambush. The ambush has just increased in 1921. Um, and eventually, I mean, the British Empire was brought to its knees. Um, but you're talking... Well, we like to say the British Empire was brought to its knees. It was, it was certainly brought to a standstill, one word or the other. Yeah, it was brought, yeah, brought to a standstill, but... I mean, the burning of Cork in that event, I, I, it didn't bring any positive to Cork, really. At, oh, at no, but in, the, in, in, in terms of people's attitudes towards the War of Independence, did it impact on that? Did it make people more wary or weary, sorry? Or um, would it have galvanised opposition to the, to the Crown forces? I mean, I, I've, I've never read and I've never kind of seen oh, members in the IRA companies were up. Uh, but I've never read either that members in the IRA companies were down, and I've never seen like that the public are saying let's join the local IRA company either. So uh, I just think that the IRA campaign kind of continued. Um, but I mean, if you if you read the Cork Examiner, as I say, if you read it onwards from nineteen twenties onwards, um, I I've never, I didn't come across editorials condemning the violence. Um, nor have I come across editorial support again. So the examiner was trying to find the middle ground. I mean, it doesn't want to, it didn't want to choose one side or another because it was targeted actually in late December nineteen twenty, um, like two weeks after the burning of Cork, the printing presses uh, were were burnt out. By whom? Um, I think it was Black and Tan Attack, as far as, as far as I recall. The so, other thing around it, and I think I saw a quote here was from an IRA intelligence officer, Florence O'Donoghue. And he suggested that the burning of Cork was not an isolated incident, but rather the large-scale application of a policy initiated and approved implicitly or explicitly by the British government. Is that unfair? Is it fair, do you think, that the British government would have been happy for that kind of devastation to be wreaked on the island on the basis of... I, I mean, I, I'd, I'd agree that it was a, a part of a wider set of actions. I mean, I, it was something that I said at the start of the podcast in terms of McCurtain, from McCurtain's murder to curfews to ambushes to the start of arson. It was certainly part of a wider set of a- actions on both sides of the fence. Um, my my gut is that the English army, or the, the British army and the Black and Tans um, were responding to what the IRA were actually doing. Um but and certainly with the Burnley of Cork, like the Black and Tans were like, we'll take it a step further. Um, and certainly I, I'd have to say, when you start looking into it more, like early October, the ambush that was held on um, in early October 1920 on Barrack Street, um, like after that IRA attack on, on Barrack Street on the Black and Tans, like that following evening and night, there was an arson attack in City Hall. And I think that's where the step up to arson and, and mass destruction began to happen, right. that they just got fed up with the IRA and it just began to kind of take it a step further. So I'd say from early October onwards, and then, of course, you do have, like, Terence McSweeney's hunger strike, you've got the death of Michael Fitzgerald and Joe Murphy. Both of whom died on hunger strike in Cork Prison. Yeah, and I think just, it's just event after event after event after event um, that led to the burning of Cork. And you mentioned uh, Nambush and Barrick Street, Kieran. Was those type of urban ambushes in built-up areas 
Did they become a feature of the war in Cork? Yeah, City. yeah, hugely. I mean, I would say from July onwards, where the RAC barracks were targeted, like McCurtain Street um, barracks was targeted in July 1920, I think. Um, let me just have a look at my my notes. Um, yeah, June and July 1920, the RAC barracks were hit in the city. And in terms of support, what you might, I, well, would it be unfair? There might have been a lot of small business, but if you, was there a, a merchant class? so to speak, operating out of the centre of the city and would they have been recognised as being supportive one way or, or the other of the insurgency? Um, again, like we're, we have a shortage of accounts from people at the time and what the normal Joe Soap actually thought. Like what does the normal family living in a tenement in around the north side of the city, around Barrack Street, what they actually think? We don't have their accounts. Like we have uh, accounts of what they lived in. Um, and I'd say certainly... Like the election of Sinn Féin and their, the creation of their majority in um, January 1920 within uh, Cork Corporation, um, I would say was down to them campaigning in some of the tenement areas in the city in this kind of campaign that we're going to get you something better, we're going to get you out of the tenements, we're going to get independence, we're going to have a better future. Um, like the IRA were very, very good at narrative construction. Um, in, in fairness to them uh, and that's something they also continued right throughout 1920 and then you end up with this gorgeous booklet like Who Burned Cork City which is like a, a pinnacle of um, narrative construction and story construction um, so I yeah Just to bring it on beyond the burning itself Kieran, you mentioned in the Civil War was there some attempts to burn areas of the city during the Civil War or was there um, August 1922, uh, I suppose the members of the old IRA were in the were in Cork City and holding... Yeah, on, on the anti-treaty side. Um, yeah, and they were holding the city and the Free State Army wanted to take it back um, and the members of the free... like large companies of the Irish Free State Army landed on passage um, west and... Came by sea. Came by sea, um, made their way up on Passage Road and then there was this huge standoff um, in Rochestone and Gary Duff Woods. Um... No, I, I give walking tours of the city and actually one of my new walking tours is of Gary Duff Woods and of the, of the battle for Douglas. Um, and in the Civil War. In the Civil War. And so you were very much kind of like hand-to-hand combat in the middle of Rochestone, Gary Duff Woods. Um, and eventually the IRA um, were all, the old IRA, the anti-treatyites, uh, treatyites, um, they were forced into the city and then they actually forced them, they, they, had to, they were forced from there to, to McCroom into West Cork. And of course, Michael Collins came down and Michael Collins followed them into the heart of West Cork and that's where Michael Collins was shot. And so one one could blame the battle for Douglas and the, the holding of Cork <laughs> for Michael Collins. Could go down that road. Said, but what, was, was the city damaged in that conflict? Um, we do know that um, I, old IRA or anti-treatyites people did blow up bridges. So for example, the, the Cork Passage railway line, there was an old, there's an old bridge there that's reconstructed in our time on the walk that was gone um, so railway lines in particular were targeted to stop the movement of free state troops um, across the country um, you do it, it, it's interesting enough like you, we do have accounts in like 1923-1924 in the Cork Examiner where there's these half page spreads of the reconstruction of Mallow Bridge and all these series of railway bridges and infrastructure that had to be rebuilt and isn't this a great bridge and this was this was taken whatever two years ago and now two years later here's where we're at and it's very much like an Irish Free State press statement um, as well um, but nothing can compare to the Burnley of Cork I mean even one could argue like there was a Burnley of 
Cork's um, Burnley of Cork or within the medieval town in the 1620s. Um, but that only really took out North Main Street area. But this 1920 was uh, was phenomenal, like in terms of the. And finally, Kieran, when it was reconstructed, was there any <laughs> equivalent of a, a, a topping out ceremony or an occasion when we're reopening Cork? Did 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 that coalesce at any time? Um, there wasn't a topping out ceremony, but British Pathé Films did actually a little movie of coming down Park Street, showing all the new buildings. So that's actually online if put in British Pathé 1927, and you'll see this lovely camera panning across all the buildings down on Partick Street. Um, and of course, by 1927, like um, the motor car really had come onto the street. And so you'll see the street is like, it's it's not tarmacadamed, but it's got a, a nice surface on it. And you'll see there's a lot more motor cars than in, before 1920 in some of the photographs that the Cork Examiner have in their editions before 1920. So culturally, actually, things had changed in the seven years as well. Like um, our streets had changed, had to accommodate um, motor cars. Late 1920s, the omnibus came in. Um, you'd, because the roads were better, cyclists were coming in. Um, so, like, culturally, we were also changing. Um, I mean, as I said, I've, I went through the Cork Examiner during lockdown between 1920 and up as far as the middle of 1929. But you can see, like, that, that music was changing. Um, music? Yeah, like the School of Music were broadcasting on local radio. Um, so we actually set up a broadcasting station um, in the, what's now the city jail in Shanakiel. Um, we were broadcasting from there and, that, and you can actually discover that history when you go up and um, take the tour of what's now the women's jail in Shanakiel. Um You also have things like new housing projects coming online. They were, they were late 1920s planning to build um, housing in Turner's Cross. They, they built new housing in Capital Road. Like times were changing um, and, and, and it's, it's very interesting um, like when they did in whatever August 1927, like the autumn of 1927, the, new, the, the, the last building was done. One of the things they did that Christmas is that they set up a, a Christmas campaign to bring people into town. And it was set up by a thing called the Cork Publicity Association. And so they put up new Christmas lights and they had a big, this big, huge campaign, Shop Local. And when you look at that and you compare it to the present day, you can actually see the same sort of Shop Local, um, Stay Safe, um, there is there is an overlap actually between how they built the city and how we find ourselves in 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 twenty twenty uh, in terms of they needed to be resilient and the thing about Cork is that it's such a small city like in nineteen twenty they deployed all the resources their best solicitors their best legal argumentors um, their best people to try to get proper compensation for the city proper design and styles and one could argue we we still have that sort of ambition as well in the city today and that sort of resilience because i find find when we do end lockdown or the we we get we can get control of the coronavirus through a vaccine or other measures or whatever like the city will have to deploy its best people to get the city back on track again uh, and that's what they did in 1920 a different a different battle but a battle a different battle nonetheless uh, yeah Kieran McCarthy thank you very much thanks mike That's it for today, folks. In the next episode of the Irish Examiner podcast series on the centenary of the War of Independence, we take a look at how Munster in general, and Cork in particular, became the main theatre of the conflict. I'd like to thank JJ Vernon and Sound. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to us on all the usual platforms and you can let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on Twitter at at mickcliff. See you soon. 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.